This morning is Psalm 27. You might as well at some point have marked in your in your Bible 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll spend a little bit of time there as well. I think they're very much related scripture texts. This psalm is a psalm that David wrote at a time of great persecution. We'll see as we hear these words that he was under attack. His life was even in danger. And in that time of conflict, he wrote a song of courage, of confidence, of faith, and even of joy. And that can be an encouragement to us as well. Psalm 27. Let's remember that this is the very word of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face. My heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. After the events of 9-11, which were quite some time ago now, and yet they seem so close. After those events, there was a, a national prayer service in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And there's a lot, a lot that I remember from that particular worship service. But one of the things I remember is that they read Psalm 27. And it was a fitting psalm 
for that time, in a time of darkness, a reminder that there is light for the world. But what I remember vividly about the reading of that psalm was who read it. It was a Jewish rabbi. And as he read that first verse, I remember thinking to myself, he's not hearing that psalm in the same way that I hear that psalm. Because verse 1 is speaking to us of Jesus. I think it's actually quite clearly pointing us forward to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Think about the imagery that you find in verse 1. The Lord is my light. And doesn't that cause you to look forward to John chapter 8 when Jesus says, I am the light of the world and whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 1 also says, the Lord is my salvation. And you can almost hear Paul when he's asked, what must I do to be saved? In Acts 16, and Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. This psalm is clearly pointing us forward to Jesus, who is light for those who find themselves covered in darkness. As we read the Old Testament, we need to read it with the New Testament in mind. As we consider the promises that are offered by God to his people in places like Psalm 27, they are clearly pointing us forward as well to the fulfillment of those promises in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what this psalm is doing, even as David wrote it, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. This is a psalm written in a time of great conflict. It's a psalm in which David responds with confidence and courage in the midst of that conflict. And it's a psalm that reminds us that as we find ourselves in times of difficulty and conflict, we can have confidence and courage as we look to God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see as we look at this psalm this morning. Well, first of all, consider uh, three pieces of this psalm, three aspects of it. First of all, that it's a psalm of conflict. Secondly, that it's a psalm of confidence. And third, that it's a psalm of courage. But then as we, as we kind of pull all that together, we'll consider how it's possible to have courage and confidence in the midst of conflict. But first of all, this is a psalm of conflict. This is a psalm that David wrote at a time that's described as being filled with conflict. He's on the run. His life is in danger. Look again at just several verses in this psalm. First of all, verses 2 and 3. We see he's surrounded by evildoers who are seeking to devour his flesh. They're adversaries and enemies. There's a host or an army encamped against him and around him, and war is rising up against him. His life is truly in danger. He describes it as well in verse 5 as a day of trouble when he needs protection. In verse 6, he speaks again of his enemies and needing to be lifted up as his enemies surround him. And maybe the most painful cry of this psalm is found in verse 10. Even his mother and his father have forsaken him. It's as if he's completely and utterly alone. And in verse 12, his adversaries are described as those who breathe out violence, who speak lies. They're seeking 
to destroy him. We need to understand that, first of all, that that the conflict, the danger is real. When David wrote this psalm, his life is truly in danger. This might be, in a sense, the last psalm that he ever writes if those enemies should prevail. And it's in that context that he writes a psalm of hope and confidence. But when we read a psalm of David, we need to remember as well that especially in those psalms, not just in all the psalms, but especially in those written by David, that it has in mind also the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, whose life on this earth was filled with times of conflict. He had enemies always seeking to destroy him and take his life. We can hear a a prophecy of Jesus very clearly in verse 10. My father and my mother have forsaken me. He's completely alone. Jesus, as he went to the cross, his family had left him. His disciples had scattered. Only two remained at the cross as his life left his body. We can hear Jesus as well in verse 12. A cry for deliverance as adversaries are speaking lies against him and breathing out violence. So this is a psalm of David. It's a psalm of Jesus. But we need to hear as well in Psalm 27 that this is a psalm for the people of God. Throughout the history of the people of God, both in Israel, but also now in the life of the church. We live in such a way in a world broken by sin where conflict and division and strife and suffering and opposition and persecution and adversaries are all around the church. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Our life is characterized by conflict and opposition. Just listen to some of the New Testament reminders of that character of the Christian life. These are, if you will, promises, but maybe promises that we don't always like to hear. First of all, in John 15, this is Jesus in the last week before his death, speaking and giving last instructions to his disciples. And this is what he says in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And also Matthew 5, at the end of the Beatitudes, these promises of blessing for the people of God. This is how those promises end in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the character of the Christian life. We shouldn't be surprised that the church faces opposition and persecution even today in the places where we live and where we do our business. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Christian life is described as taking up your cross daily and following Jesus. There's a sense in which Jesus tells us that 
that following Jesus involves division with your family, your father and your mother, a sword, he says, that will divide. And so the Christian life is one of conflict, especially as we live in faithfulness to the word of God. And I think you can even hear the conflict with sin and death in verse 2. It says, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies. Can't you hear in those verses uh, the cry of the assault of sin, the decay of death, and the devil who seeks to devour the people of God? That's the context in which David writes Psalm 27, and that's the context in which we live the Christian life. And so this psalm of conflict is a psalm for the people of God, and it's a psalm for you as you live life in a world broken by sin. So it's a psalm of conflict. But it's also a psalm of confidence. And that's how the psalm begins, actually. It begins with confidence. Look again at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Notice the images that David gives us as we wrestle with what it means to live in a world of conflict for the Christian. Light in a dark world. Salvation for those who are in danger. And defense, another word could be stronghold or refuge for those who are in a time of difficulty. These aren't abstract images. They're real personal images, and he makes them personal even in how he says them. Notice he doesn't say the Lord is light and salvation. He says the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. These are promises that we as the people of God can cling to because the Lord is for all those who trust in him a source of light and salvation, a refuge for the people of God. And as he then opens that up, he He reminds us of all the ways that God does that. In fact, verse 2 seems to point to past occurrences of the Lord being light, salvation, and a refuge for David. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. He's remembering times in his life when he needed deliverance and the Lord provided it for him. But then in verse 3, he looks forward to times in the future when he will experience the same kind of care and salvation. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. He's taking confidence in what the Lord has already done, and he's projecting it into his future. Matthew Henry, in writing about what is happening in verse 3, describes it in this way, that David is rejoicing in triumph before the victory. He's celebrating victories that haven't even happened yet because he knows the Lord to be faithful. And that phrase, triumph before the victory, what does that sound like? Doesn't it sound like faith? Hebrews 11 verse 1 describes faith in this way. It's the evidence of things hoped for, the confidence of things not yet seen. David's confident because he has faith, and his faith is in one who's always faithful. So we have these images of salvation from God that provide confidence for 
the Christian. But we have one more image that we find peppered throughout this psalm. He reminds us of the source of our confidence, or maybe we could say the place of confidence for the people of God. Do you notice how many times it talks about a tent, a tabernacle, a temple, and a house? This is the place where God dwells with his people. And that place where God dwells with his people is a reminder of the confidence that we can have in God who's always faithful. Notice it, especially in verses 4 through 6. One thing have I asked from the Lord, that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He goes on to describe meditating or inquiring in the temple of God. Verse 5, he says, For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle, the place of worship. In the secret place of his tent, he goes on to say, God will hide me. Verse 6, he says, My head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent or in his tabernacle sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing praises to God. The Lord is a home, a cover, a shelter, a tent, a tabernacle, a covering for the people of God. And even when it seems from the perspective of the world that all promise of hope and relief has left us, the Lord remains. Isn't that what we saw in verse 10? My father and my mother have forsaken me. He's completely alone. But the Lord will take me up. The Lord remains. And so it's a psalm of confidence because of who the Lord is for his people. But it's not only a psalm of confidence. It's also a psalm of courage. They're not quite the same thing. They're different. And we see that courage in particular at the end of Psalm 27. It says there, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is one of those verses that's hard to get out of the Hebrew into the English. You'll probably see notes in your Bible that describe other ways for it to be translated. I want to talk about a couple of them because I think all of them are useful and help us to understand the fullness of what's being described uh, in verse 13. The English Standard Version says this. It says, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There's confidence there in what David's expressing. It's as if he's giving himself a pep talk, if you will, as he heads into conflict. Maybe you've been at a sporting event where they have this chant at the beginning of the game, I believe, I believe, I believe that we will win. It's like they're strengthening themselves as they head into a contest that they're not actually sure if they're going to win. But I believe. Well, there's something to that, that David is reminding himself in the midst of conflict where he could be discouraged. I believe I have confidence because the Lord's given me promises and he always keeps them. I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And don't miss that last phrase. His faith, his confidence, his belief includes resurrection. He will look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There's a sense in which he's saying, if I survive this conflict and continue in my life, I will see the goodness of the Lord. But if my life is taken from me at this moment, in the land of the living, I will see the beauty and the glory of my God. He's confident that God has life for the people 
of God. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That belief is rooted in the character of who God is, his goodness. He's good to his people. But notice then what that courage looks like in the life of David. Wait for the Lord. Verse 14, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Now, there is an expression of faith in the context in which David writes. His life is in danger. His enemies surround him. It seems to be a call for action for David. And yet he waits patiently on the Lord because he knows that his strength, his joy is in the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So it's a psalm of conflict. It's a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm of courage. But aren't you left with a question then? It's a pretty simple question. How? How can I have courage? How can I have confidence when the conflict is this great? And I think David provides the answer for us, in particular in verse 4. I think this is really the heart, the meat of this psalm. Just listen to these words in verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord. Now, let's stop there just for a minute. One thing. In the midst of conflict, when the world around him is spinning, there are lots of things that could be on his mind. But there's one thing. He has a fixed focus, a fixed gaze. One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. It's really remarkable when you consider the circumstances that produce this psalm and this statement of purpose. Adversaries and foes surrounding him seeking, up to, seeking to eat up his flesh. You might expect that kind of expression of Psalm 27 verse 4 at a time of rest. Maybe a Lord's Day. When life calms down a little bit or a time of peace. But this is a time when his life is in danger. And he can say, there's one thing that I desire. Fellowship with God. A quiet resting in the presence of God. I can imagine what my thoughts might be. One thing I desire, deliverance. Deliverance from my enemy. Physical safety. Maybe I would desire a return to my own house from which I've been chased as I'm hiding in caves. Maybe my desire would be restored relationship with my family. Those who've forsaken me. And Lord, if you would give me those things, then I could fix my gaze on you. We all have those, right? Our if onlys. Lord, if only you would provide for me Better finances, a better job, better relationship with my children, a better relationship with my spouse, a peaceful family, a healthy marriage. If only you gave me those things, Lord, then I could fix my gaze. I could devote my attention. I could give myself to inquiring about you and gazing upon your beauty. But David says in the midst of conflict that there's one thing that drives him, his chief end, his last goal, the center of his existence. And that one thing is fellowship with the living and true God. 
And notice, it's not so much focused on all the blessings that come from salvation in God, but it's focused on the person, who God is, the beauty and glory, His majesty. There's one thing that David desires, fellowship with the true God where he can consider His glory and His majesty. And that's the one priority that drives David's thoughts and wishes and actions. And it's not simply something that he's waiting to receive passively. It's something he's pursuing. He's preoccupied with it. He's obsessed with fellowship with God. He's pleading with God to provide it. Did you notice that in verses 4 through 8? He's almost demanding this from God. He's pleading, demanding that he could dwell in the presence of God forever. In verse 7, he says he's crying with his voice. He's calling out to God. And in verse 8, he says, you've said, seek my face. My heart said to you. In other words, not just my lips and not just my voice, but my whole being. Everything that I am and everything that I have is crying out to God to satisfy this one desire. The face of God. Have you considered how personal that request is to seek and to see the face of God? Maybe an illustration will help. And for those of you who are younger than 40, this illustration will take a little bit of work. But about 30 years ago, when I was engaged to my wife, um, pretty quickly after that, she was away for half a year in Cyprus, and I was in Washington, D.C. This was before you had things like FaceTime or Zoom or whatever you use to look on your machine and see someone's face as you talk to them. It's before cell phones, so all we had was calling cards, and they were really expensive. And so we talked on the phone for about five minutes a week, and then we did this crazy thing we took a pen and we wrote letters. Uh, I was living in a, a building with about 25 college students. And whenever those letters came, I would take the letter, I'd stop what I was doing, I would shut the door to my room, and I would sit there and read it three or four times over. And I loved those letters. But I remember also as I'm reading the letters, thinking to myself, these letters are great. But it would be so nice just to be able to see her face. As David cries out to God to see his face, he's not asking of that of a finite human being. He's asking that of his God. Who's spoken to him by his word and through the prophets. But David longs to see the face of God. Remember, Moses was the one who got closest to God. He could see the glory of God, but he couldn't look at his face because if he looked at the face of God, he would melt. And when the people of God came for worship, there was this thick veil between them and the Holy of Holies because if they even stood in the presence of the glory of God, they would die. And David says, Lord, I want to see your face. And I think as we hear that, we even hear something of a New Testament desire, if I can say it in that way. Something that we have now in a way that David could only imagine. This is where it might be helpful to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is beginning uh, to fill out what his apostolic ministry is and what it means 
to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as this chapter begins, he's describing the veil that's over the face of unbelievers. They can't know or see or understand who God is. He begins in verse 3 by saying, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Verse 4, it goes on to say, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And then notice verse 6, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. And what happened when he said, let there be light? There was light. That same God with the same power is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's really, in in a much fuller way, what David is seeking. He's seeking to know the glory, the majesty, the beauty of God and to see it in God's face. And God answers that prayer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we gaze upon His beauty as He's revealed to us in the Scriptures, we see something of the glory of God in the face of Jesus We should ask a few questions as we start to draw to a close. First of all, is that my desire? Is that your desire? Above all else, to gaze upon the beauty of God, the beauty of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, to inquire and to meditate on his beauty as he's revealed to us in the gospel. Is that what gets you up in the morning? Is that what keeps you going when a day is frustrating and long? To know the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And maybe a second question. Do we believe it's even possible to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus? There are lots of days when it seems so far from us. We wonder, will we ever know the joy of our God again? And he says, look at Jesus. And in Jesus, you will know the glory of God in his face. And you can rejoice and take confidence in him. But as we close, we should ask, how, is, how do we do this? How do we gaze upon the beauty of God in the face of Jesus? And David answers that question for us as well. He gives us at least four ways that we can gaze upon God's beauty in Jesus. And the first is simply this, worship. What we're doing right now is an opportunity to gaze upon God's beauty in the face of Jesus. Isn't that what we see all through that middle section? He's constantly running, turning to the house of God, the tabernacle, the tent, the temple, the place of worship where God meets in a special way with his people. Where we sing and praises to God, where we pray in response to to his promises where we hear God revealed in the word, where we see him now by faith. But one day in uh, that glorious day when we're gathered before the presence of God with the church throughout the ages, we'll no longer do that by faith, but by sight. As we gaze upon the beauty of our Savior, what a glorious day that will be. 
But in this psalm, there's at least underneath it that command, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because it's in worship in a special way that you gaze upon the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. So worship is one way that we do that. Secondly, we do it by reading and studying and meditating upon the word of God. We see that in verse 4. He's beholding the beauty of the Lord and meditating in his temple. Meditating on what? The word of God. As he turns over the promises of God and the glory of God revealed in his word and gazes upon the beauty of his God as he's revealed in the scriptures. We see it as well in verse 11 where it says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path. Because of my foes. That's language that we find all over the Psalms. Teach me your way and lead me in a level path. And how does God do that? By the light of his word. And notice even that his motivation is because of my enemies, because of this conflict that's all around me, I have to run to your word so I can gaze upon your beauty. So worship and word. Third, prayer. Verses seven and eight. What do we see David doing? He's crying out aloud with his voice, saying, Your face, Lord, I shall seek. He's crying out with his voice, be gracious to me and answer me. Those days when we wonder, is God distant? Will he show his glory to me again? We can cry out to God and say, show me your face. And that's a prayer that God loves to answer. In fact, it's a prayer he's promised to answer. Isn't that what we see in this psalm? You said, Lord, seek my face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. So worship, word, and prayer. But the last thing that he calls us to is faith. Receiving and resting in the promised Savior, Jesus. There's another way that verse 13 is sometimes translated. I think it's helpful to us. You'll see it in a note in the English Standard Version. You'll see it in other versions as the primary translation. And it's something like this. Had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then the sentence isn't finished. It's like a gasp. Had I not believed? I have nothing. No hope, no confidence, no courage, no joy. But I can believe. And I can know that I will see him face to face in the land of the living. And for that reason, I can wait on the Lord, which is an expression of faith, especially in the midst of conflict. There's a dependence, a trust that's expressed here as we wait for the Lord's coming. And what happens to those who receive and rest and wait upon the Lord? They shall be renewed in their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint from Isaiah. This is the promise of this text in a nutshell. For Christians struggling with life, in a world that is frustrating and sinful, we can look to Jesus and see the majesty and the glory of God revealed in his person, in his work, in his salvation. And we can rest in him and never grow weary, even when life is difficult and hard. May the Lord give us strength to do that. In the midst of everything that goes on in our lives, may he give us strength to have a fixed gaze on Jesus, who is hope and salvation, and light, and a refuge for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as those who are often tired and struggling and frustrated, even sometimes sad and discouraged, 
And we ask, Lord, that by the strength of your Son, our Savior, the risen Savior Jesus, that you would cause us to know the comfort that is available to us and offered to us in this psalm. That we would see in his face your beauty, your majesty, and your glory, and we would be strengthened to rest and to wait on you, our Lord and our God. Lord, would you give us strength to do that even now? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.